we uh, did not pay attention to our rules on that one this time. And now I will be paying for it. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. So how have you been since you and I last talked? Things have been good. I have been working away at my job. I guess I had my book release since the last time we <laughs> recorded an episode. Oh, yeah, that thing. That's easy to forget about. I had a book release party that went very well here in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, please, everybody, go out and buy my book, The Secrets of Character, Writing a Hero Anyone Will Love. I highly, highly encourage anybody on the sound of my voice to buy my book, read my book, and review my book on Amazon, on Goodreads. Also, of course, review all of my various podcasts on all the various places, and no one yeah. has reviewed our podcast on Audible. I have no idea if anybody ever actually reads those reviews, but that would be a great place for someone to leave us a review. And for that matter, on Apple Podcasts, we've been stuck at three reviews since we started. It's maybe for the best, because I've got more reviews from my other podcasts, The Secrets of Story podcast, but they like to you know, show you a variety of reviews. So you know, no matter how many reviews you get, they just feature three of them on the front page. And right. one of the three featured reviews on the front page for the Secrets of Story podcast is entitled So-So. <laughs> <laughs> As for me, I think I mentioned last time we were getting the interior of our house painted, and it is mostly done at this point. They thought they were going to finish up yesterday, but you know, still have some stuff left. And then also we went on a vacation to Aruba. It's the uh, first time I have been on a plane since quarantine. It was great. We built up so many frequent flyer miles points on a credit card that we have that we haven't been able to spend for the last three years. We've got a timeshare. And between those two, I think we actually ended up spending more on food while we were there than we did on travel and lodging. Oh, awesome. Aruba is great for anyone who hasn't been there. You don't feel like you're part of the problem. You don't feel like, oh, I'm here under armed guard to protect me from the people who actually live here so I can have. Oh, also, you're not the ugly Americans there. Instead, the real prejudice they have there is against the Colombians and Venezuelans. <laughs> because Spanish is usually an Aruban's fourth language. English is only their third. So they are happier to speak English than they are to have to speak Spanish in most cases. What are their first two languages? One is a Creole language called Papiamento. Then basically all their schooling is in Dutch because they're a former Dutch colony. One of my favorite trivia questions, who was the only American president to speak English as a second language? Uh, was that Martin Van Buren? It was. Grew up speaking Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, you did not stump me. Yeah, I did not stump That was very impressive. I gotta say. I read a uh, biography of Andrew Jackson several years ago, and Martin Van Buren comes up a fair amount in that. That came up in there, that he spoke English with a Dutch accent. This is February of 1964. And sorry, I'm one of those weirdos who insists on pronouncing February the way it's spelled. I know that most people don't. I somehow picked that up when I was in like third grade, and I've been doing it ever since. Do you also say Wednesday? Uh, honestly, in my head, I do. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we are in February 1964. The way this stuff was published, that means these were hitting the stands, if I'm not mistaken, the month that Kennedy was assassinated. Yeah, so all of these would have come out before that happened. But this is what kids would have in their hot little hands when suddenly 
the world sort of turned upside down for them, at least, you know, for what their parents are seeing and talking about on the TV. Yeah. Just to put that out there as some historical context, of course, the creators of the comics would not be living in that reality for another month or maybe two. I don't know how long the production, you know, took in those days. So I, I just try to keep that sort of in mind as we go. Right. So we're going to go ahead and start with The Amazing Spider-Man. Do you want to start this one or do you want me to? I think I've started with Spider-Man the last couple of times. Do you want to do Spider-Man this time? I'd love to do Spider-Man. So All let's right. go and talk about Spider-Man number nine. In this great issue, you will meet Electro, a man is so powerful that Spider-Man's strength is useless against him. We didn't talk about this last time with issue four with Sandman. It's a two-panel cover. I think it would be a stronger cover with just the one panel of Spider-Man getting the shock. I don't think we need to I think see Spider-Man right. prone as Electro walks away. It sort of made more sense with Sandman to show all the various things Sandman could do on the cover. We meet Electro in this issue. If you look at the recent movie, No Way Home, where they bring together villains from the previous seven Spider-Man movies, Dr. Octopus, Green Goblin, Lizard, Lizard Electro, Sandman, I'll take a villains all introduced. I, I guess the only one we haven't gotten to yet is Green Goblin, who's coming up in a couple issues. All of these immortal villains who would go on to these long afterlives and have crossed over into multiple movies now. None of those were in their first movie in that movie, a movie that became one of the most popular movies of all time. This level of genius that we're getting from Dicko, especially of these creation of these villains, of the looks of these villains. It is just incredible. This is one of the most astounding acts of creation in the history of literature. It is an amazing work. Yeah. We have Amazing Spider-Man number nine. We begin with a splash page showing all of the various characters being accusing or, well, it's funny. Betty is here twice. Betty is here once smiling at him and then, but she's also on the bad guy side turning away from him, showing that their I had not, relationship I had not noticed more complicated than this issue. I had not noticed that before, but yes, I was just noticing that now. Also, for that matter, JJJ is on both sides. Hold on. I, I, no, I, I just saw what's going on because he's half Peter Parker, half Spider-Man. So on the left, you see the characters who know Peter Parker and sort of the attitudes they have towards Peter Parker. And on the right, you have everyone who knows Spider-Man and the attitudes they have towards him as Spider-Man. Okay, so then in the issue, we have Spider-Man. He is desperately swinging his way across town, doesn't even notice that he's flying over a shootout between criminals and cops, although he sort of resolves it accidentally. Spider-Man gets across town to bring medicine to his Aunt May. It's never clear to me exactly what illness she has that she needs oh, no. all this medicine for, because at times it seems like she has like a weak heart, but there's not there wasn't really a, a lot of bottles you could chug to help you deal with a weak heart in 1964 in the cover dates. We have a beautiful Dicko noirish panel of Dicko loves Venetian blinds just because he loves all things noir. And we've got a Venetian blinds shadow of Spider-Man showing that the burden of Aunt May is weighing heavily on him. We then cut to Electro. It's interesting. He has to sort of charge himself up. And you see this in the Spider-Man movies as well, that he's got this sort of electrical device. He started charging himself up, even though he has sort of a very typical origin. We'll get later where he was a lineman who was struck with electricity. Now, you would think that Linemen get hit with a lot of electricity all the time. And for some reason, if you are an electrical lineman and you get hit with electricity and everything goes just right, you get electrical powers, but you still have to wear a device and charge yourself up. So then well, kind, we see kind of like him getting bit by a spider. You know, people get bit by spiders all the time, but, you know, you just have to be in just the right circumstances and then you get spider powers. Exactly. So we see Electro, Rob and Armored Car. We see Pete once again, ignoring everybody at school who are all pissed off at him. We see Pete visit. Aunt May and Betty is there. So we're getting to a certain point now in their relationship where she is visiting his sick aunt 
and they are hitting it off like gangbusters. But then we get our first hint that there is a problem. So then Pete is leaving. She thinks it's strange, although Peter seems so calm and easygoing. I can feel that he's like a smoldering volcano inside just waiting to erupt. It's as though he carries a deep secret within him, one which no one can ever share. And so she looks genuinely worried. We then get one of the many things that Dicko is amazing at, which is rain. Top panel on page six of Spider-Man trudging home in the rain across the cityscape is absolutely gorgeous. So then we get something strange. Spider-Man lives in Forest Hills. So they're like, oh, and it's always sort of seems like a big coincidence when the bad guys attack Forest Hills, because why would anyone ever attack Forest Hills? Well, in this case, it's a double coincidence because Electro attacks the Forest Hills bank and JJJ is there. Now, why yeah. would JJ Jameson do his banking in Forest Hills? I'm, what I'm guessing here is that Steve Ditko said, oh, OK, well, J. Jonah Jameson comes into the bank and Electro gets him. And Stan Lee was like, wait a minute, how would the geography of this work? And so maybe he just sort of made that change, you know, just basically yeah. threw that in there. Doesn't make any sense. But so then no. Electro robs the building and then Electro can somehow use his electricity to climb walls. And so he climbs a wall to get away. This convinces JJJ that Electro is Spider-Man. He puts out a call in his paper for pictures that prove that Electro is Spider-Man. And then we get, boy, oh boy, we've had lots of evidence so far of Peter Parker, shady photojournalist. But now we take the cake. He is desperate for money for his aunt. And he decides to go ahead and do by far the worst photojournalism ethics he has yet demonstrated. He goes ahead, fights Electro. Electro, as far as Electro is concerned, just shocks him to death and leaves his corpse behind and walks off, which is somewhat similar to, to what happened two issues ago with the Vulture. And once again, he's sort of left on a rooftop, seemingly dead. In this case, he wakes up and he decides to go ahead and fake photos for Jameson, showing that Spider-Man is Electro, which is... You know, it's shown, to be fair, as being a terrible thing to do as, uh, and, you yes. know, his his desperation is somewhat believable. We get Electro's origin, which I flashed ahead to before. Electro then decides he's going to free all the prisoners at a prison in order to get himself a gang. Spider-Man is with his aunt. His aunt goes in for an operation. Betty is there once again to wait with him. Everything is going crazy at the prison. Peter's aunt is fine. Peter is going to go to the prison and Betty is not having it. She is not happy. She says, I was afraid of this. You're beginning to enjoy the danger, the excitement, just like someone else I once knew. And I think Dicko really draws her anguish well. I yeah. think that Dicko is good at doing that. He's good at the soap opera stuff, even though he was never a soap opera artist. And, yeah, and I, I know that I often talk about how the one thing that Ditko couldn't really draw well is conventionally pretty women. But he's doing a pretty good job with it right here. You know, once again, looks everyday pretty as opposed to Mary Jane Watson supermodel pretty. But this moment is the moment when I start not liking the relationship as much. I just I kind of liked it when it wasn't angsty. You know what I mean? I kind of liked it when they were just two kids falling in love. But you can't you can't keep that up. You know, you need to complicate things. And I think uh, that sure. she becomes a much richer and deeper character as this goes on. I think that she becomes, you know, that this was, this is literature here, man. You know, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to complicate the story. You've got to have their human frailties coming into play and creating conflict. That's what stories are. <laughs> okay. You're the story expert here. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's one of the secrets of story. If more tips like this, check out my book. So the moral characters are still not crediting colorists at all. We got some nice colors all throughout this month. 
top right panel on page 14 where the cops are fighting the crooks who have taken over the prison. I don't know how this looks in your recolored version, but rather ambitious colors in this version with red interweaving with pink in the sky. They reproduced that pretty faithfully uh, based on what you're describing. So then Spider-Man shows up at the prison. JJJ sees him and realizes he's on Electro and feels very depressed. Spider-Man, on his way, he has stopped off at a store and gotten himself some little rubber booties and some little rubber gloves so that can help him fight Electro. They have a nice big epic fight, which is as always well done by Dicko. Electro pulls out a gun gun, but (laughs) Spider-Man webs it up. Uh, Electro then is whipping wires around as electrified whips. Spider-Man then defeats Electro with his secret weakness, which is water, shoots him with a hose. There is that a very funny panel in which Spider-Man decides to unmask him, which he doesn't usually bother with. And he takes off the mask and he says, if this was a movie, I'd gasp in shock and then say, good heavens, the butler. But this guy I never saw before. Oh, well, it won't take the police long to find out who he is. This seems to be something that Steve Ditko has a thing about. Because yes. then later, much later, they're going to have the whole thing with, uh, what is it, the crime crime boss? Crime master. Crime master is going to have this whole same thing. They're going to sort of build up to the big reveal. And the big reveal is he's just a criminal that nobody knows. Like, <laughs> what's up? And I remember hearing before I had gone and read them myself that there was a similar conflict about, about Norman Osborn that was actually the cause of Ditko's leaving. Now that I've read those issues, I don't believe that. But that certainly goes back to this reputation that Ditko has for the anonymous face of crime. Yeah, I agree. It's a common urban legend that Dicko left because he refused to countenance that Norman Osborn would be revealed to be Green Goblin. But it is so clear from the Dicko issues, where Dicko is credited as the sole potter on the comics themselves, that it's so clear that Norman Osborn is the Green Goblin from several yes. issues beforehand. And uh, that's got to be a false urban legend. But so then we get to one of my major problems with Spider-Man comics throughout the entire series, which is... Spider-Man is shown that he has just left his camera dangling from a web to take the world's greatest photographs. Jameson could not be happier with these photographs. And they were just being taken by a camera dangling from a web that presumably was set up to just automatically click the shutter once a minute or something. Even then, how much film could there possibly be in this camera? Film was very expensive at the time and bulky and took up a lot of space. These would be just the world's worst photographs. I mean, (laughs) can you imagine what photographs would look like taken from a camera dangling from a web? I've always... Sure, I can can totally imagine what they would look like, and they would just be worthless. I've always figured the only way for Spider-Man comics to make sense to me is if, you know, Spider-Man's a great inventor, is I always just have to imagine that, even though they're not showing this, that Spider-Man has invented an AI tripod that can automatically swivel around as a tripod and take great photos, automatically clicking the shutter when there's some sort of action happening. And that is always what I've had to imagine in order to enjoy these books. Sure. JJJ absolutely loves the photos. Peter Parker agrees to give him the photos free in order to make up for the fraud. Now, at first, JJJ is like, Parker, before I fire you, I'm going to tell you something. I'm suing you for those fake pictures for fraud for anything I can think of. It's like, uh, as well, you should, J. Joe Jameson. Like, that was that was terrible fraud, and he really does deserve some sort of comeuppance, which he does not get. Then Spider-Man is uh, having to deal with the cold shoulder from Betty. She is not happy. They sort of break up. 
Spider-Man goes and sees his aunt, and then suddenly Betty comes and catches up with him. There is a gorgeous panel of the two of them walking away into the hazy city underneath a street lamp as they try to make up. And it says, each groping for the right words to say, each feeling the first pangs of that emotion we call love. But it is a much more complicated love than it had been in the previous issues. I think this is a great issue. As opposed to what you were saying, I think that the deepening of the Betty Brant character relationship is what makes it a great issue, but I think Electro is fantastic. I think that pushing Spider-Man into a crisis point where his ethics are compromised is compellingly done, but problematic still at the end and (laughs) in a way that is never really addressed in the history of the character, his ethical issues. But I think that just in terms of this comic, not knowing that there will never be a reckoning for that. It is very well done. Yeah, well, at least it's not about ethics in video game journalism, because then there would be death threats and everything. That's all this is, man. Is anyone going to get that reference? (laughs) Gamergate, yes. (laughs) Meanwhile, on page 21, the last panel on there, Jameson is often looking malevolent in one way or another, but not like that. (laughs) Yeah. That right there is like mustache twirling villain. I love this issue. I love the art in here. You know, as we've talked about, you are a bigger fan of the actual art per se of both Ditko and Kirby, I believe. Really, my favorite Ditko art is basically after he really gets into the groove on Spider-Man. I still wasn't liking it very much in the Dr. Octopus issue, but pretty much after that, I really think he is just working at peak quality, basically through till nearly the end of his run on Spider-Man. And so I am really liking the art in here. I'm loving the expressions. I'm loving, as you say, the noir cityscapes and the noir hospital room scenes. I'm loving a lot of the poses and expressions. It's just fantastic stuff. It is. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. All right. So I guess we move on to Fantastic Four. We have the Fantastic Four, the master plan of Dr. Doom. And once again, on multiple issues this month, they are pushing the whole Marvel age of comics, which for us, looking back on it, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's the reason we're going back and doing this podcast. But, you know, at the time, Marvel comics weren't selling nearly as well. (laughs) (laughs) as DC and everything else. But Stanley was nothing if not a promoter. (laughs) He was a a P.T. Barnum. He basically willed the Marvel Age of Comics into existence. So the master plan of Doctor Doom. In this one, we've got Reed being a real jerk. And it can be fun when Reed's a real jerk. Yeah. Uh, We start out with some sort of dinosaur or something that he's, I think, brought through a time machine. Is that what's going on here? Yeah. So he is finally, you know, rather than go out to Dr. Doom's abandoned castle every time they want to use the time machine, he's finally like, "Uh, (laughs) I should just dismantle this and set it back up at my own headquarters. So he has finally brought the time machine back to his headquarters, but he has told the rest of the Fantastic Four to watch the time machine to make sure that nothing gets out and they have not been doing it. And a dinosaur has gotten out. Right. So they go ahead and send the dinosaur back in time. Reed is lecturing everybody and just being the stern 1950s dad uh, lecturing the 1960s family, basically. Right. They're all getting upset. Meanwhile, we see just some regular criminals. One's getting convicted. Then he's bailed out. There turns out to be some other guys. 
who are also bailed out and brought to this uh, location. And then it turns out the strange, mysterious figure who brought them here just collapses because it was essentially a Doombot reskinned as a normal person. Dr. Doom has assembled these three guys with various skills. Although it really doesn't seem like they've got that much kind of skills, but one way or the other, he brings right. these guys in to be able to give them superpowers to be able to fight the Fantastic Four. So we'll get back to that. Meanwhile, the rest of the Fantastic Four have all decided they need to elect a new leader that reads a jerk and they don't want to take orders from him anymore. So they try to vote, but they all vote for themselves. So, so then they get into a really fun Kirby fight. Of course, there's an asbestos rug that they're having the headquarters there that Ben is able to use. Now we see Sue using her force field once again to great effect. On page eight, she breaks up the fight by uh, creating a barrier between the two of them. And both of them are just easily repelled from the whole thing. So meanwhile, uh, Dr. Doom turns these guys into some kind of supervillains. Uh, one's fireproof, one is super strong, one has super hearing so that he can hear the uh, invisible girl where she is. One of the bad guys that he uh, bailed out is a guy who has some kind of a turban getup. Basically has him pose as a wealthy Maharaja who wants to give a fancy, futuristic, high-tech car to Johnny Storm because Johnny Storm's awesome and he deserves a great car. Of course, Johnny sees this and he's like, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So he basically sneaks out of the house while everybody else is busy doing stuff and goes down to claim his futuristic space car. Of course, as soon as he gets in it, the Maharaja locks him in. Torch tries to burn him, but he has this fireproof thing and is able to capture and subdue Johnny. Then meanwhile, the thing was angry earlier. The reason he didn't see Johnny sneaking out is he's angry because of another letter he received from the Yancey Street gang. So he goes down to Yancey Street to take out his revenge on somebody. But then he sees, oh, looks like that poor little kid has his hand caught in that window grating. He says, have no fear, kiddo. The thing is here. Don't bother to thank me. I'm in a big hurry. He says, thank you. I wish I was big enough to whap you one. If anyone on the street sees that I let you help me, my name's Mud around here. He's like, just my luck. You're too big to spank and too small to clobber. Uh, Dr. Doom's strongman comes in and is able to give Ben a, a run for his money. Uh, but he's a little outmatched, except for a high-tech gun that he's got, a cosmic beam gun that allows him to turn the thing temporarily back into Ben Grimm, which allows this guy to knock him out and subdue him to bring back to Dr. Doom. We then have actually Reed being like Professor X here, sneaking up on Sue to test your reflexes. Pretend I'm an enemy who has stolen on upon you from behind. How would you cope with me? Which I realized that whole trope is reminding me of uh, in the Pink Panther movies. What was the name yes. of what was the name? Was it Kato? I mean, I would. Because I yes. mean, that's the name of the, the green. I have not hornet. seen those movies since I was like my daughter's age. I watched those movies yeah. on TBS when I was like 10 years old. I do barely remember that he had a he had a assistant who was always supposed to sneak up on him and surprise him. Yes, I get the feeling those movies have probably not aged. Very well. I get the feeling <laughs> I get that impression as well. I there's a reason I have not revisited those movies with my own kids. Sue is very unhappy with the way that he's treating her, you know, not like a full grown woman, but just as a child who needs to be trained and scolded. Uh, meanwhile, on page 14, panel three, that shot of Sue almost looks like it was taken from the Wyeth painting Christina's World. <laughs> yeah. 
So who knows? Maybe it was a swipe. Oh, but yeah, and this is one of my favorite panels in early Fantastic Four history. Page 14, panel five. Reed is once again lecturing her and having rather 1950s attitudes towards women, let's say. I mean, he's being uh, especially awful here. He's saying, just like a woman, everything I do is for your own good, but you're too scatterbrained and emotional to realize it. Well, all right, I can play it your way too, Miss Storm. And she says, oh, go polish a test tube or something. But then and right. this is one of the all time worst moments in Fantastic Four. <laughs> like then she says, because so far that's fine. He is clearly toxic masculinity. He is clearly exposed to such. And as long as she holds her own, it's fine. But then this is an example of her not holding her own, which is not fine. And she says, that man, I know he's right. And that's why I'm angry. If only he understood females better. And it's like, okay, that is, you know, to have him call her too scatterbrained and emotional and then have her go, I know he's right. Okay, this is clearly being written by a man who is not actually writing this the way a woman would write it. It is problematic. Um, Yes, but I love her response. Go polish a test tube or something. I don't know if that was meant as a double entendre, but I like to read it as such. Yeah, I you would think it sort of has to be. (laughs) Then it gets worse because... You know, she says, if only understood females better. And then says, later, after Sue's returned home, there's a knock on her door from a man who does understand females better, unfortunately for Sue. And then a bad guy shows up with flowers and women are suckers for flowers. And that's how he's able to defeat her. It's problematic. Yeah, he defeats her with some kind of gas gun. Then uh, so a Doombot that has been reskinned as the thing. And I'm just referring to this Doombot. Any robot that Doom creates, I'm just saying, well, it's a Doombot. He just put a new uh, outside on it. The thing seemingly shoots his Fantastic Four flare in the air. Mr. Fantastic responds. And then the thing and Dr. Doom combine to lock him in some kind of unbreakable clear box. He then turns out the thing is actually a robot. Now all of the Fantastic Four are trapped. Dr. Doom in his typical arrogant fashion is like, I'm done with my thing robot. Now it should be destroyed because anything I no longer have use of can no longer exist. Basically, I'm interpreting that. That's actually a foreshadowing of the plans that he has for his three <laughs> superpowered criminal guys. Yes. He is just about to do the exact same thing to them. Dr. Doom's arrogance often outpaces his competence. Yes. I guess his confidence outpaces his competence. Let's put it that way. That, that's, I think, a better way of saying it. Yes. The Fantastic Four are able to break out of their various traps. They all come together and work as a team. When they were fighting earlier, it looked like they were not going to be working very well as a team. But they are able to more or less win by working as a team. But then something else happens. Dr. Doom thinks to himself, Mr. Fantastic did not suspect that I bought this warehouse because my research discovered it is in the path of a solar wave, which sweeps the earth every 24 hours. So I'm like, that's called a day. (laughs) Yes. The sun. Oh, wait, (laughs) a solar wave passing by every 24 hours. That's never been seen before. How did you find a place on earth that would be affected by that? That's just a poor choice of words for whatever the heck this thing is, because it creates some kind of rift in space time or something like that, and is about to essentially transport them into outer space. But then Sue thinks to project her invisible force field through the wall to capture Dr. Doom and trap him up against the wall of the room that they're in, thinking that then whatever fate befalls them will also befall him 
And so he might help to figure this out. Of course, as it happens, Dr. Doom ends up falling into the void, theoretically never to be seen again. Of course, we will be seeing a lot of him again. So then they all escape right in the nick of time. They say, look, the room is gone. Nothing but some girders are left. Says, see, we won't have to worry about getting a new leader for a while. Looks like you'll do right fine, big fella. But then Ben says, if you ask me, we should have elected Doom. Anything with Fantastic Four acting as a family, no matter if they're a functional family or a dysfunctional family in that particular issue, I really like. Even though Reed is being a jerk, some of the things that I like about the Fantastic Four are the fact that he is sort of a 50s guy in a 60s team. You know, that he he doesn't quite fit. His attitudes aren't quite as modern as Sue and Johnny's and, you know, can be a lot more imperious than what Ben would be uh, expecting. This is a lot of fun. And I, I like that they were fighting each other and then they have to learn to, you know, use teamwork once again in order to get out of the thing. I think that Dr. Doom is sort of, being overused at this point, and he doesn't have Liberia yet. He doesn't really have a thing. I feel like giving him these three henchmen is somewhat interesting, and you know they could have maybe worked going forward, but instead he zaps them all to another dimension to be brought back if he ever needs them again. They're kind of struggling for what to do with him. Yeah. It's great to see, on the one hand, Sue getting to use her powers in really badass ways and getting to use her new powers in a way that totally saves the day and is, is very imaginative and powerful. But, you know, she's really mistreated in this issue and goes along with it in a way that is very disturbing and not at all fair to the character. You know, Stan not giving that character the respect she deserves. So it is a problematic issue. It's fun to have them all vote for a new leader and all vote for themselves. (laughs) Characters should always be motivated by self-interest. It is fun to see how hard it is to lead. That was my favorite element of the issue. Generally speaking, Doctor Doom desperately needs Latveria at it just as Sue desperately needed to get her force field powers in order to make her a much stronger character. Dr. Doom now desperately needs Latveria. Yes. And I think he gets it soon. I mean, yeah. It's not going to go too much longer before he, uh, before they, they associate him with Latveria. And I believe if I recall correctly, I believe that it turns out that he conquers Latveria and becomes their leader. That it's not that, Oh, we just haven't heard about it before, but he's been running this country the whole time. Uh, but we'll see if I'm wrong when we come up to that. I, I probably... don't remember that. We'll see. Okay, so now we're moving on to Journey into Mystery, the return of Zarko the Tomorrow Man, who is not the best villain in the first place. <laughs> you know, I thought that it would have been better if they would have waited until Kang existed and then just later been able to fold him into the whole Kang Immortus thing. But uh, one way or the other, so we have a return of him. This is Jack Kirby and your favorite anchor, Matt, George Bell. But wait, you're you're jumping in. You're doing this issue. It's, this is me. This is my issue. Yes, I guess so. Okay, <laughs> never mind. All right, go on. So yes, where were we? Journey into Mystery 101. So the big news with this issue, Kirby is back. That's the great news, is that Kirby is back in the lead feature. The bad news is he's brought George Bell with him. He's got George Russo's uh, inking him and not doing a good job. We didn't talk about thinking on Fantastic Four. It was also inked by George Bell. I thought it was better than the previous two issues. Uh, That's not saying a lot. I thought the previous two issues were absolute horror shows. But I think Bell is getting the hang of inking Kirby a bit more. But one thing actually I hadn't noticed when I read this earlier, but I'm noticing right now on the splash page, there is a definite inking mistake on that splash page down where he's stepping on the trash can with his left foot and striding forward with his right foot the bit of the trash can 
definitely looks like it is overlapping that calf that is in the foreground in front of it. Yeah. That's just a misinterpretation from an anchor moving too quickly and not really paying attention to what they're doing. Fundamentally making mistakes here. I think this is very poorly inked. It's such a tragedy because Joe Sinnott was just here. Like Joe Sinnott was just <laughs> here as the pencil and anchor of this book. And now Kirby is back and it's like, just overlap them a little bit. Just if we had ever once seen Sinnott, I, I guess that's not true. The very first issue of... Kirby's Thor was inked by Sinnott. And if we had ever once, once they were both at the peak of their powers, seen Sinnott inking Kirby again, then, oh my God, I would be in seventh heaven. The closest thing we get is to when near the end of Kirby's run on Thor, Bill Everett inks six issues and does an amazing job. And it's such a relief after all those years of Coletta inking Kirby, but also George Bell inking Kirby and just doing a terrible job in this issue, although not as terrible as Bell was in his first couple of issues inking Kirby. Thor is sort of similar to the beginning of the Spider-Man, where Spider-Man was going through town and couldn't be bothered to deal with anybody. Here we have Thor being downright hostile to the citizens of New York. They call in the Avengers to come deal with them. The Avengers show up and they're like, uh, Thor, what's going on? And he's like, none of your business. And they're like, okay, none of our business. <laughs> Giant Man wants to deal with the problem, but Iron Man's like, cool, Giant Man, Thor's right, it's none of our business. If he has a personal problem, we can't help. Come on, big fella, he knows what he's doing. So then Thor is on a pier looking out into the river and pining, cut to Odin and Loki who are looking down on him. Loki convinces Odin to ban Thor from Asgard entirely. Thor then decides to once again go talk to his father about Chain, but he shows up and Heimdall will not let him in. So we have actual action for the first time on the Rainbow Bridge, Thor fighting Heimdall and getting just repelled. Heimdall's a badass here. You know, makes it clear that Thor shall not pass until Thor has to go home. Meanwhile, Loki looks down into the Well of Centuries, which is a nice visual, realizes, hey, what about that guy in the future who Thor wiped the memory of? Let's go ahead and restore his memories and see what happens there. And sure enough, in the future, Sarko, the Tamar Man, is like, hey, I just remembered. I hate that guy Thor. I'm going to go back in the past. As I'm going to build a huge robot. There are still no weapons in Sarko's future, but there is an indestructible mining robot that sure looks like a weapon once you bring it back to 20th century Earth. <laughs> really beautiful ship on page nine that Zarko has, this sort of a rounded cube-shaped ship that he shows up in. And it, lo it looks like the generation of Apple router that I have. Yes. Yeah, I have the same router. Then Zarko and the robot show up. And then Thor says, Zarko's back. I got to stop that guy. I'm a big fan of the drawing on the top of page 11 where the robot has laid a building across the highway. And there's a big pileup of cars on either side of the building. And I think that's the sort of thing only Kirby could draw. And he draws the hell out of it. Yeah. Thor gets in a big fight with the robot. Cannot beat the robot. The robot is whooping his ass. And then Sarko says, and now Thor, do you realize that you have met your superior at last? So this is something that will happen constantly in Thor, is that Odin has reduced his strength. But Odin has not only vanished from Asgard, but reduced his strength. So then Sarko says, if you give me your word to return to the 23rd century with me and do my bidding, I shall do no further harm here in this century. And Thor says, you win, Sarko. I will go to the 23rd century with you and do your bidding. So then Sarko sucks the robot and Thor up into a ship. And they disappear back into the 23rd century. Loki is looking down on all this and laughing. And then the issue ends. It ends on a cliffhanger. I think this is an exciting issue of Thor. I think we sort of have the best of both worlds here, where Jane is causing a lot of conflict between Thor and his father and his brother. But Jane is not actually here. 
<laughs> because <laughs> I don't actually need Jane. I just need the conflict she brings. It's such a shame to have Bellin King Kirby, but I think he's doing a much better job than he could be doing. I agree that Zarko is not as good as Kang and is sort of unnecessary and will soon be superseded by Kang. But I think he works well in this issue. I think this is a fun issue. Let's just quickly sum up Tales of Asgard at the end. Yep. We have a really nice story at the end, the invasion of Asgard. One thing I like about these early Tales of Asgard tales is I always like Thor with a sword. Mm -hmm. I think Thor looks really badass with a sword. He's got a sword and a shield here. Lots of villains are attacking Asgard. <laughs> Loki's like, there's a hole in the wall that protects Asgard. And uh, you can be a big hero by protecting that hole in the wall. And then, of course, Loki thinks, I drilled that hole in the wall. <laughs> Trusting fool, I know you won't soon forget this, for it is I who made that hole, and it is I who have told the evil ones that it's there, and that they can come and defeat you. Again, it's George Bell Linking, which is a shame, but we have an awesome panel on the top of page three, where all of these villains are attacking at once. And Kirby is just letting his Phantom of the Northsmiths go like crazy. He has the Norn Hag riding Ulfrin the Dragon, the Merciless Rhyme Giants, the Last of the Ice Giants, Skull and Hati the Wolf Gods, Gerodor the Troll, shows them all attacking Thor at once. We get a nice epic battle as Thor gets to fight all of them. Just when he's been turned into a tree and is about to be killed, the heroes of Asgard show up to rescue him and we get an awesome shot on the top of page five of Odin in full warrior mode, rescuing Thor with the rest of all these other warriors and then finally we end with thor attempting once again to lift the hammer that he is not allowed to lift yet or not worthy enough to lift or maybe just not strong enough to lift they're very unclear about that seems that almost strength and worthiness are bound up together in this whole thing is what it seems like to me of course right. odin has fantastic headgear again on that page uh however not as fantastic as it will become yes jack kirby will eventually get into just trying to make it more outrageous each time you see it at this point it's just certainly a lot more eye-catching than it has been at some points when other people have drawn it but i've also got to say on page four panel three i absolutely love that panel of Thor turning into a tree. I mean, that's a sort of terrifying look, you know, something right out of a horror film. But, you know, here it is just sort of right in the middle of this epic mythic battle. Yes. I just always love Tales of Asgard. And this is yet another absolutely fantastic comic with Kirby back on the front of the book. He's still preserving his best work for the back of the book, I think. Yeah. So we are going to move on to Strange Tales, I believe, is the next one we're doing. Yes. Uh-huh. All right. So Marvel Comics Group proudly presents the return of the eel. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he was really worth returning. The cover seems drawn by Ditko, which is a little bit odd, or at least the eel was clearly drawn by Ditko. Yeah. I don't know about the rest right. of it, which is a little odd. Turns out that the eel is at large again. Johnny is throwing fire darts at a target when he hears this and he's like, oh, I've beat him in the past. I need to go beat him again. Sue, who is just dressed up in her fantastic four uniform sitting around at home, which I guess both of them are because that's just what they do. She is worried that he is going to singe the new drapes, which are not fireproof, which just seems like a bad choice. You know, why, why are you getting non-fireproof stuff in this house? He goes and finds the eel and is going to try to capture him. And it turns out the reason he's at large again is because he did his time. He had good behavior. He was allowed out on parole. And now you are just harassing a free citizen, Johnny Storm. Who just feels, likes to wear his eel costume. Yeah, no law against a man wearing what he wants to, Torch. And this is what I want to wear. 
Okay, so, <laughs> but Johnny learns that, you know, he can't just say, hey, that's a bad guy, I need to attack him. He needs to know the law. We then see the eel return to his job at the aquarium. Seems odd that they would take him back after that. Although, you know, good for them for giving a, a freed convict a second chance, right? Generally speaking, Marvel Comics are, and I guess this is true for all comics, rehabilitation is never looked upon kindly in comics whenever anybody's like this person's gotten out of prison and i think they can turn their life around and then there's one character who says i don't think they can that character is always right well every now and then the gladiator turned good it may have happened at one point in the 80s with sandman i know that there was an uh a marvel two-in-one ben was like drinking beers with the sandman yeah no sandman became a good guy for a while he even joined the avengers for a while yeah that's true but yeah it Mm -hmm. rarely happens but it does happen So anyway, it turns out that, yes, indeed, he is still evil and he's putting on his eel costume again. Well, and so he's probably like, oh, right. I figured out something that as an eel themed villain, there was very little that was eel themed about me. And that was pretty (laughs) lame. So now I should at very least, for Christ's sakes, get some electrical powers. So from now on, I will go ahead and give myself some electrical eel powers. Yeah, the last time the only eel power he had really was that he was slimy. Yes, (laughs) it's slimy and slippery. But yes, he has now added electricity powers. Eel, meanwhile, is trying to do his thing. He is going through sewers and goes to the office of the city's leading stamp collector shop in order to go in and steal a bunch of collectible stamps that he can then sell on the black market. It's like, dude, banks. They're a thing. (laughs) If you're able to use the sewers to go and get up into various places, just go go to a jewelry store. (laughs) Um, Especially because if you're sort of a famously damp villain, then I would think you wouldn't you would want to avoid stamps particularly (laughs) like that's famously a treasure that you cannot get damp. So I would think that that would be right out. That would be something that just would not be within your purview. Johnny hears about it, and then he's like, that sounds like a job that the eel did. They go ahead and place this ad in the paper that says something about Prince Singh Ram of Turkestan is in New York with the fabled Ram Ruby, the largest and most valuable in the world. He's like, that's a lot better thing for me to steal than these stamps. So he then And this is not the first time in Human Torch's comics that he has resorted to placing things in the newspaper in order to lure people into crime. This is a big part of Johnny's modus operandi. So it turns out that the gem is some kind of fake fire gem Johnny has created. They get into a chase and (laughs) so um, So we have the first of two times this month where somebody jumps up from a high spot down into their helicopter. Now, I don't have a helicopter, so (laughs) I can't say for certain, but it's my understanding that you do not want to jump down into your helicopter, that that is generally not a good thing to do. The eel does it, and then later Giant Man is also going to do it, jump down into a helicopter. Now, you know, they try to do this sometimes in movies. It was quite ridiculous in Captain America, the Winter Soldier, Nick Fury and Black Widow were in a helicopter, and Sam Wilson, whose wings weren't working, had to run out of a building and jump onto the helicopter and they sort of had the helicopter tilt itself so that he could do this and it's like that's not how helicopters work in this case you do not want to be the eel in this situation jumping down into his helicopter no he is going to be a nice italian dinner 
<laughs> yeah, he does this sliced up nice and neat he jumps down into his helicopter past the blades somehow as with keeping of the eel having no theme to him as johnny is flying after the eel the eel just shoots water at him for a second but then the eel's like aha i know how to defeat you as an eel themed villain i have the one thing that all eels have i have laughing gas and I will shoot laughing gas at you and then make you laugh uncontrollably, which is how laughing gas works, of course. And that way I will be able to get away. Why? Why? Oh, eel. Why do you have all these things that no one would associate with eels? Why are you flying around in a helicopter shooting laughing gas at people? Maybe if you were the hyena or something like the hyena has a laughing gas weapon. Or the or joker. Or the joker. Yes, the joker. That's perfect. <laughs> He should be shooting laughing gas at people out of a helicopter, not the eel. Yes. The eel gets away. Johnny is humiliated uh, after throwing a temper tantrum in the presence of his sister. She says something that makes him think, water, eel, of course. What a meathead I am. He's got to be back at the aquarium. Susie, old sis, you're the most. And it's like, that's not, you didn't check that already? Like, how... Right. Seriously, he shows up at the aquarium, of course, in full costume. The eel comes and gives him a bear hug. And it turns out that he's got asbestos grease on his outfit. Which, like, okay, that keeps him from flaming on. They get into a big punching fight because he can't flame on. Eel is then going to drop him into the shark tank. He comes to a little bit and sees the tank of asbestos grease. Uh, nearby. Apparently, you can't buy just one day's worth of asbestos grease. You know, this is Sam's warehouse, and they will only sell it to you in huge gallon tanks. And it's like, maybe, well, maybe. I guess I'm going to have to fight a lot of flame-themed villains now because I had to buy a huge tank of asbestos grease. Maybe you could buy it a pint at a time, but I mean, you know, you're going to be paying five times as much per ounce. <laughs> yeah. Come on. This is this is the only cost-effective way to get asbestos grease. Johnny says the asbestos grease has worn away, and so he can now flame on. Then apparently flame makes electricity backfire on the person who shot it because the plot demands it. Johnny then melts the asbestos grease can, which he can do because it's not actually asbestos itself, and the eel slips and falls into the electric eel tank, but he doesn't want the eel to die, so then he sits there and throws fireballs into the tank to keep the eels away from the eel until the cops can show up. It's really weird. So at the end, the Fantastic Four buy him an aquarium as a memento of his two times fighting the eel. Because he was just thinking, oh man, I can't even think or look at any fish at this point. Here's fish. And the drawing of the fish tank on the last panel is not great. No. <laughs> I can't tell what the perspective is. I can't is tell if that. we're looking up or down or what. Dick Ayers' penciling is usually better than that. In this case, it was not. Ayers is a perfectly fine penciler anchor, as was said on, as is heck. But just the basic fundamentals that Kirby and Dicko have are just lacking. And this is a perfectly serviceable issue, penciled and inked by Ayers, but lacks so much that Kirby could bring to it. This is a typically weak issue of Johnny Storm. They're trying a little harder with the eel to make him make some sort of sense, but they have failed. He makes no sort of sense. It's, <laughs> let's just forget all about this story. 
I will say that Dick Ayers, when he takes over Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos from Kirby, I think he does a really fine job on that. I think it's just that some people aren't really geared towards doing superhero comics as much. Dick Ayers yeah. flourished on a war comic the same way that Don Heck seems to flourish when he can be drawing, I think, as you said, like fashionable people in uh, fashionable locales, but that neither of them are as good at superhero stuff. Yeah. All right, so then we move on to the second story in the issue. Doctor Strange faces the many traps of Baron Mordo. I had said earlier that in the Doctor Strange movie, the Dark Dimension didn't really look as much like a Ditko dimension as I would have liked. But if you look on the left side of the splash page here, that looks sort of like that Dark Dimension that we see in the movie, right? Yeah, um, right. The sort of angular thing look, looks like a shattered mirror. And so uh, I'll give him that. That looks a little bit like what we would end up seeing. So we have the return of Mordo. He now has a new plan. He has this little scale model of the Sanctum Sanctorum. I don't think they've actually called it the Sanctum Sanctorum yet, have they? I don't think, I don't think so. Doctor Strange needs to figure out a way to get out of there. But then meanwhile, Baron Mordo shows up at the Ancient One's temple and begs his forgiveness. I was wrong to be evil. I, I want your forgiveness. So he's like, ah, I lured you into complacency. Now I'm going to use my magic on you. And, you know, the ancient one gets up and starts being like, yeah, you can't do that to me. And then it turns out that he is actually Dr. Strange, who has made himself appear to be the ancient one, Dr. Strange's astral form. He explains that this cylinder that he was trapped in, this magic cylinder, actually had no bottom. It just went through the floor and all the way through the earth. So he was able to drop all the way through the earth in his astral form. Nicely drawn by Dicko. Dropping. Yes, yes. It transmitted down very, very, very far. But by the time you got to the other end of the earth, it no longer had any power. and He was able to get free. Mm -hmm. Then he came and told the Ancient One, and they set up this trap for Mordo. Yes. Doctor Strange, he says, By the power of the Vishanti, in the name of the all-seeing Ancient One, I summon all the forces of good and focus their blinding power upon you through the facets of this ring. And Baron Mordo, no, no, I cannot bear to look at it. He starts running away, but he cannot run away from the light of goodness and truth. Doctor Strange ends up cleaning up the evil spells that are here and uses them to trap Baron Mordo, expels him in some way, and then he's able to return his home to its place in the village. I wonder if anybody saw it, and if they did, if they just thought it was that the drugs were kicking in. <laughs> One way or the other. It was right around this time, right around where Doctor Strange's address is supposed to be, that the weatherman famously blew themselves up, and there was a whole building that exploded in the village. I guess it was a couple years later. Yeah. So they might be used to having buildings suddenly disappear in around Bleecker Street in the village at this point. Or maybe it gave the weatherman the idea. You know, it's like, yeah. hey, you remember when that building just kind of disappeared? What if we did that, man? We just get this uh, odd last panel of Doctor Strange sitting, looking almost kind of morosely in his home, looking at some kind of crystal orb under that big symbol window thing that he's got that just ends on this down note. This was a lot of fun. It's nice seeing, once again, the otherworldly dimensions. It's great that Doctor Strange figured out a clever solution to getting out of his trap. And uh, I love the art of Doctor Strange's home 
evaporating. Yes. That, that's nicely just done. really nicely done. And not only evaporating, but then coming back again. Panels of Mordo being chased by the light of goodness that he can't stand. Those are also very well executed. I think that the pod is somewhat pedestrian, but I think that it is gorgeously drawn. Dicko was in a very noirish mood this month, both in Spider-Man and in this comic. And the atmosphere is very heavy here. Everything is just gorgeous, but definitely the issues where he fights Mordo feel like they're more on autopilot than the other issues. One thing I will point out that this issue has that no previous issue has had is this issue mentions Doctor Strange on the cover, I think, for the first time. He has Mm -hmm. been appearing off and on since issue 110. Here we're up to issue 117. There is no pictures. Nobody just looking at the covers of Marvel Comics still has any idea who Doctor Strange is or what he looks like. But this one does say, at least in text, also featuring Doctor Strange and the terrible traps of Baron Mordo. It's unclear how proud they are of this comic or if they feel like it has any sales value whatsoever. But for the first time, they're at least willing to begrudgingly admit its existence on a cover. So I think it is time to move on to Tales of Suspense, which is your turn. And uh, that's good because then you can deal with the portrayal of the Mandarin. (laughs) Yes. So we're back to having Don Heck penciling himself on the inside and doing an especially terrible job in this issue. But just to contests and pieces with what we could have gotten kirby does the cover on the cover it says iron man fights for his life in the castle of a madman see the mandarin the awesome power he possesses matches the evil in his heart kirby draws the hell out of the mandarin here and he looks awesome and most importantly he gets a throne and kirby loves thrones and the mandarin is sitting in an awesome kirby throne he's got his 10 rings on his 10 fingers for a very problematic person they have gotten a lot of use out of the mandarin in the marvel cinematic universe the very first Movie Iron Man is kidnapped by a terrorist group in Central Asia called the Ten Rings, which was reference to the Mandarin's Ten Rings. The Mandarin himself seemingly appears in the third movie. He is seemingly the big bad of the movie, although it turns out he is somewhat of a false is stalking horse. What does the phrase stalking horse mean? Is he a stalking horse? Um, sure. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. He is a Turns out sort of a phony villain, just an actor has been hired to play the Mandarin. The Mandarin isn't real in that movie. Then they had a short film that came out that was a short film that was a DVD-only special feature that explained for the first time that, yes, that was an actor trying to play the Mandarin, but there was also a real Mandarin who was choosing to remain in the shadows, even to the point of letting someone else impersonate him. And, and that, then, that that short is available on Disney+, Plus, and we went back and watched it again recently, and it's really funny. Yes. So we finally finished watching the 22 movie MCU saga with my kids finished with Endgame. Now we're taking a break from Marvel. But if we do go back and watch Shang-Chi, I'm like, okay, we're going to have to actually watch that short in order to connect up Iron Man 3 with Shang-Chi. They're still getting a lot of use out of the Mandarin because then they had sort of the actual Mandarin show up as the villain in the Shang-Chi movie, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. These Ten Rings are Ten Rings. They are Ten Rings to go on your Ten Fingers. In the movie, the Ten Rings were like 23rd Temple of Shaolin type rings. They are, you know, these big iron hoops that loop over your forearms. It is an entirely different thing. I like the rings. I like the way the rings originally are, that they are all rings that have different superpowers that fit on the Ten Fingers of the Mandarin. So it was interesting to see, I don't know how it was colored in your issue, but with the ancient one in the last issue, he is usually colored with Caucasian skin, and he was colored in that terrible yellow that they sometimes use 
Yes, it was that that same yellow color in this one. Yes. The Mandarin is an interesting villain. He is colored Caucasian. He is not, thankfully, given that horrible yellow color. Unfortunately, Heck is really playing up the yellow apparel stereotype. He seems to be going for sort of a buck teeth type thing as well. Yeah, yeah. And it's very unpleasant. He is not colored in that terrible yellow, which is nice, but not a good design generally when you're creating a costume, putting the first letter of that person's name on their chest is always admitting defeat. That is that is the <laughs> lowest level of costume design. It is especially bad when the person would not speak English, like Galactus having a big G on his chest when he first appears, or the Mandarin having a big M on his chest when he first appears. Like, yeah. not even a Chinese letter on his chest. A big English M. Super lame. The rings are cool. So one of the interesting things about the Mandarin is that he is not a communist. Right. He is a Chinese villain, but at the beginning, he is running his castle, presumably out in West China. I get the impression that he is further out West than the main Chinese government. When he first appears, he is told by his servant that emissaries of the Red Government have come to visit him. He is not impressed with the Red Government and brings them in on a moving carpet of stone. They say that they want his atomic secrets. We have come to ask you to share your atomic knowledge with our government. With your help, we could menace the world with nuclear destruction. So did China not have nukes at this point? Um, They might not have. But then he just says, forget it, get out of here, and kicks the Red Army officers out. Then we cut to Iron Man being strangely proactive for once, and the government is warning him about the Mandarin and telling him, we want you oh, to by go. By the way, apparently Beijing detonated its first nuclear weapon in 1964. Oh, okay. So like right here, these yeah. comics came out in February 1964. So all right. So no, they no are... cover date was February 1964. They actually came out probably November or December of 1963. So essentially, China was clearly on the road to making nukes. So this would have actually kind of been topical that the Chinese were saying, oh, maybe this guy can help us with their nuclear program. Yeah, that's funny. Iron Man, we see as being strangely proactive. The government is saying, we want you to learn more about the Mandarin. Iron Man then has to go back to his place. They decide to rechecker the love triangle here. So Iron Man lands. He is realizing he's going to have to skip an employee dinner to go investigate the Mandarin. It's unclear if he has a unionized workplace here, but the workers at least have a representative who is not happy that when Tony says he's going to skip the employee appreciation dinner, he then grumbles and happy punches him out in a very nicely drawn panel from Heck. Then Tony is like, whoa, 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 we don't do that. And he's saying, if you punch anybody else out, you're fired. Meanwhile, Pepper is like, uh, hasn't anybody noticed that I'm hot now? And... <laughs> Yeah, apparently, if you're like a mousy secretary, then, you know, you can just go get a hairdo and put on some makeup and suddenly you're like smoking hot. You know, I guess it's right up there with mask technology in the Marvel Universe, right? That uh, I don't find it that <laughs> I don't find this that unbelievable. This seems like this is within the range of an actual makeover. She says, man, a girl spends all day at a beauty parlor getting a new hairdo and covering her freckles. But do you notice? No, I could look like an old dish rag for all you'd care. Tony suddenly says, Pepper, for heaven's sakes, I didn't even know it was you. You're, you're beautiful. And then Happy, it's interesting, says, I kind of liked you the other way. So they're setting up that Happy is the one who really loves and understands Pepper. And indeed, they will eventually get married and both be written out of the comic at that point. But we get our first glimpse of Pepper, the beauty, in this issue. And for the first time, she looks like Gwyneth Paltrow. And 
She will always say this way. We will, I don't think, ever see her freckles again. And they will reference it at one point. They have like a little pinup page they do of Pepper, and they have a little caption. This is several months from now. Uh, they have a little caption that says, oh, yeah, she used to be this. I, I forget the term, but I will keep on wanting to say mousy. I don't know where that comes from. Girl. But then she figured out what Tony Stark likes and gave herself a makeover. And now she's very glamorous. So uh, they do acknowledge that, that that change happened in the future. They don't just pretend she was always that way. But then Tony has to go to the Mandarin. Now, this is interesting. In the deleted scenes for the first Iron Man movie, they make it clear, OK, he's going to go fight the Ten Rings in that movie in Afghanistan, but he's first got to get on a plane and fly mostly around the world. He can't just fly around the world in his Iron Man costume. And then they realize people don't care. Let's just cut all that out. <laughs> we don't need to set this up in the movie. For all we know in the movie, he flies halfway around the world to go defeat them. But here, no, he has to fly on a plane and get dropped into Red China, even knows he's going to be caught, but just assumes that Chinese soldiers watching him will assume that he's fallen to his death and they'll just laugh at him. He goes to the Mandarin's palace, confronts the Mandarin. The Mandarin has different rings on each finger that can do different sorts of ways of attacking him. We don't get as much detail as we'll get later, like they become very powerful later on. Meanwhile, we cut back to Pepper, who realizes she's going to have to go to the employee dinner with Happy, calls him up and asks him on a date. Back in China, after establishing that the Mandarin is supremely powerful with these rings, he then says, ah, but I'm not going to use these rings to kill you. I'm going to use my power of karate. Karate in China. Karate, not kung fu, but karate. Apparently, I went to Japan to learn my martial arts. Yes. Now, to be fair, <laughs> the most recent remake of The Karate Kid was set in China and had Jackie Chan teaching the kid karate. So uh, this is still a problem that plagues American storytellers is yes. thinking that they know karate in China. He is then trying to karate chop Tony, but Tony has a secret weapon that the Mandarin could not have counted on. Tony has a built-in slide rule in his arm. And Which is terribly drawn. I was remembering drawn. this as like, oh, it must have been like Dick Ayers inking Heck or something like that. Or, or like that time with Dick Ayers was inking Steve Ditko. I just thought it was something where it's like, oh, yeah, this is some bad combination. But no, this is all on Heck. I will not defend that panel in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> And he uses the slide rule just to figure out exactly what angle to put his body at. He says, it was a long chance, but it worked. He thought I had flipped my wig when I used my calculator, my, my analog calculator. But actually, I was figuring out exactly what way to turn my body, ensuring that his hand would strike it at the wrong angle. <laughs> like, I don't think that's how slide rules work. I don't think that's how anything works. That is yeah. a truly ridiculous thing. But Tony then basically says, well... I haven't really learned that much about the Mandarin, and I didn't destroy his place, which I kind of wanted to. So it's too bad I can't stay around long enough to finish off the castle and end the Mandarin's power. But my ride's here. And he's like, the plane that's coming to pick me up is flying overhead, and I just got to go. You know, I can't miss the plane. So then he flies up and gets in the plane and goes home. And then he does show up at time for the employees party. And poor Happy, you know, Happy thought he was going to get to go on a date with Pepper and thought Pepper actually wanted to go with him. And then Tony shows up and Happy just looks absolutely devastated and is well drawn by Heck. Yeah. And Pepper is not happy at all about having Happy there, about having gone with Happy when Tony's there. Poor Happy, you really feel sort of bummed out for. And then we have the Mandarin stewing in his place. And that is the end of the issue. We very much end on not a cliffhanger of the plot, but a cliffhanger of the love triangle, very much unresolved, even for the course of this evening. Well, you know, you're saying, you know, poor happy. 
he's not being treated quite as badly here as Pepper was when she was no. left in that room where the guards thought that she was having sex with Tony, but she was really just in there alone uh, waiting to be let out. Still, it is unpleasant for him. Yeah, so the Mandarin's portrayal, they do use sort of standard white person skin color. You know, the sort of peach color that they use for white Americans. That's good, I guess. And the drawing of his facial features. It could have been much, much worse. I mean, during this period of time, was Black Hawk still being published at this point? I I I don't know. It was on hiatus, but would come back looking worse than ever soon. Yeah, so Chop Chop in there just, you know, is the worst buck tooth, thick glasses kind of Chinese stereotype you could imagine. And there was lots of that stuff still out there. I mean, you know, when did Breakfast at Tiffany's come out? <laughs> yeah, I think it was 62. So it was around this time. Right. Yeah. Yes. So there was some really terrible racist characters were just standard. And I think that there were probably lots of people who didn't even think about it as racist. It's just like, oh, you have a Chinese character. This is how you cartoon Chinese characters, you know, just probably weren't really thinking about it. That being said, obviously, to anyone who was Asian or is Asian, you know, probably looks at that. It's offensive and hurtful and harmful, uh, you know, just in general, as stereotypes can be. So in the scale of things, this could be worse. But Honestly, he gets better. Their portrayal of him visually gets better over time. When Gene Colan takes over this book and the Mandarin returns, he actually does some gorgeous renderings where he does look very clearly Asian, but like a real world person who looks Asian as opposed to European. So they're going to get better with this. Yeah, but always going to be a very problematic character. Amazingly, they've never entirely given up on him. They're always finding ways to sort of redeem the character or make it work. And they did a wonderful job at the MCU of making the character just delightful with his Ben Kingsley version. (laughs) But ultimately, Iron Man needs better villains. He's been having a lot of very lame villains recently, and this will turn out to be a villain who they get a lot of juice out of and turns out to be a problematic villain, but substantial enough to sustain Iron Man for a lot longer than any of the others. And then finally, the issue wraps up with Tales of the Watcher, which is another standard Lear Lieber written and drawn sci-fi comic with just a little intro and outro by the Watcher to make it feel like you're getting a full book of Marvel Universe goodness. Yeah, I didn't read it. Life (laughs) is too short to read Larry Lieber comics. You know, Larry Lieber's still around. He could be listening to our podcast right now, and you might have just really hurt his feelings. Larry, if you're listening to this, come on by. We'd love to have you on the show. (laughs) That's no joke. We really would. That would be fantastic. Oh, that'd be amazing. (laughs) Wow, I'm just imagining it. And he would come on and just spend the entire time just dressing you down for the uh, horrible (laughs) things that you just said about him. He's going to carefully listen to every episode we've done. It's like going, okay, now let's get to your 12th episode. Here's what you said about (laughs) my scripting of the Ant-Man story in that issue. And I'm like, look, Larry, I just didn't know I'd have to account for all these things. (laughs) Let's move on to Tales to Astonish, starring Giant Man and the Wonderful Wasp. And we get the Black Knight. Now, this is not the Black Knight character who has now just appeared in the MCU at the end of the Eternals movie. That's Dane Whitman, who is a crusader who traveled in time and yada, yada, yada. This is not that Black Knight. And actually, there there are, I guess, three Black Knights, I think, in Marvel Comics, right? Because then they would actually do some, like, Tales of the Days of King Arthur that I remember an old reprint comic that we had had one of those in it. And it was Tales of the Black Knight. And he didn't seem to be related to either of these. Right. Well, that was a Marvel comic in the 50s. So this is sort of taking the old Black Knight character 
from the Marvel comics in the 50s. And then eventually, of course, probably Roy Thomas. I can't say for sure it's Roy Thomas, but we all know this is Roy's thing. They were like, oh, we're going to tile this in together. So the Black Knight, who we know in the comics, Dane Whitman, is the nephew of this Black Knight. Not this Black Knight, but the Black Knight yes. we were just talking about. That was the 50s no, character. This Black Knight. Oh. The giant man villain. What? Yes. I, I thought that Dane Whitman was from medieval times and traveled no. forward to now. Uh, shows what I know. All right. I just reread the Avengers comics where Dane Whitman appears. Dane Whitman is just a guy who it's like, hey, I had an evil uncle and he was the Black Knight and he eventually got killed and I decided to take over his Black Knight thing and become a heroic Black Knight to aid the Avengers. Eventually, of course, they go like, both of these people are descendants of the medieval Black Knight and are capable of communing with their ancient ancestor. But Dane Whitman, the Black Knight, who will first appear in, I think, Avengers 49, he is the nephew of this Black Knight and inherits all his stuff after the villainous Black Knight dies. Yikes. Okay, I had no clue. (laughs) So Yes, there are three Black Knights. I did not know the connection between them. So this is not him. This Black Knight is way lamer. So we start out with Giant Man breaking up kind of a crime ring, and we see some neat Giant Man stuff. Giant Man at one point leaps onto the trunk of a car, making it flip up like a seesaw and shoot the bad guy out through the air (laughs) because of the convertible. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. This is the kind of stuff that Silver Age comics are great with. Well, or Golden Age comics. Basically, Golden and Silver Age comics, this is just the kind of zany physics where it's like, well, it's a comic book. Why can't we do this, right? Yeah. So I'll say this is Ares doing Giant Man for the first time, I think. And he is taking it over, at least temporarily here, and is having fun with it. He is also presumably doing some of the potting and showing him do something that it's always been very unclear or very inconsistent in giant man comics of whether or not he actually changes size out in the field or not. And in this comic, he is consistently changing size out in the field, which is always how I like it. And it makes so much more sense that he would actually be using that instead of like going like, well, I'm small and now I have to find some way to get across town or this tremendously (laughs) lame stuff we have so often. And I think Eris is doing a great job here showing him shrinking and growing throughout the issue. Yes. One thing that really struck me in this issue is how weird Giant Man's current outfit is, especially those three purple bars on the side of his head. If you look at like at the bottom of page 17, it's just a really weird design element. Yes. So the guy who was catapulted out of the car, he says, I'll lose myself in some small nation in Europe where they'll never find me. And a few days later, in a remote Balkan kingdom, nestled in the Alps. The Balkan mountains and the Alps are two different mountain ranges. But, you know, that's... (laughs) I'm a geography and history nerd, so whatever. I would like to imagine that this might be the first appearance of Latveria. Yes. Right? Why not? It could be. Sure, why not? So anyway, he sees a statue of a Pegasus, and he's like, oh, wow, that'd be awesome. You know, what if there actually had been such creatures? So then... He finds a castle that he can rent, a deserted castle in some Central European mountainous area. That is completely believable, as opposed to all the abandoned castles around New York City. This is utterly believable. What's not utterly believable is that he then uses some sort of genetic experiments to create an actual flying Pegasus. He says, by injecting just the right proportion of an eagle's blood cells into a stallion, I've achieved the impossible of flying horse. Yes. So then we see uh, Jan and Hank. She 
tells him the reason she's late is uh, she was caught in a taxi in a traffic jam, but then she sees the Black Knight on his flying horse as she is heading over there, and that's part of what slowed her down. So he's also made himself a lance that can do all sorts of stuff. Apparently it can melt the side of an armored car so that he can go take the money out. Of course, it's a green bag with dollar sign on it because, you know, that's how you know it's money. So then he doesn't believe her. He just thinks this is like, you know, a dog ate my homework story until he hears the story on the news. And he's like, his his aunts tell him, I'm not going to believe a word you say. And then it's like, what? My aunts? My aunts are telling me there's a guy riding around on a flying horse. They can't possibly lie. He gets it from three directions. First, Wasp tells him he doesn't believe her. Then he hears it on the news. He's now thinking that maybe it's true, but he's got to confirm it from the ants. She says, I'm ready for my abject apology now, my dear Mr. Know-it-all. He's like, hold it, Jan. Let me tune into my cybernetic ant communicator if a mysterious flying horse was seen in the city. So he's still not sure based on the two ways he's heard it so far. Some of my ants somewhere are sure to have witnessed the sight. A mental impulse picture will form in second. There it is. You, You were right, Jan, as was the news. It is a flying horse, and it appears to be attacking a helicopter right now. My lovely spouse will sometimes complain that if she tells me something, that I almost always have to go look it up for myself. And she's like, you always have to verify everything that I tell you. I'm just like, oh, this Hank Pym is being me right now. Anyway, he goes ahead and takes a growth capsule to head out. And then they get to the waterfront uh, where the cops are trying to figure out what to do. So then, <laughs> that's right. This is where they bring Giant Man out in a giant, like, huge uh, Air Force cargo plane. Right. Yes. They drop him once again on this Huey. Isn't that what they call it? A Huey? The one, those old uh, Vietnam era ones, the two, hel- the two. Sure. Anyway, one of those heavy lift helicopters from the Vietnam era. So he drops down onto that. And yes, this is another case where he really should have been sliced up, but good by the blades there. Dick Ayers does a passable job of trying to wave his hands so we don't notice what's going on here. Uh, That can be a difficult storytelling job if the writer has told you something that's utterly impossible. And then you're like, well, I got to try to make this work. Although, as we've talked about, this might be him doing this plot anyway. But, you know, I get the impression that Stan Lee gave more comprehensive plots to Don and Dick and more just sort of like a, you know, paragraph long prompt to <laughs> Steve and Jack. Right. That's just my my impression. He uh, somehow avoids the helicopter blades, catches on the helicopter, but you are not going to be able to grab onto that that way. So then he ends up catching on to the uh, landing gear underneath. And this just really seems like a terrible fighting situation for giant man fighting the Black Knight who can fly and has all these weapons. And meanwhile, Giant Man is just hanging by one hand from the bottom of a helicopter that he doesn't control. It's like, this is not a recipe for victory, dude. The Black Knight has a lot of weird powers built into his visor and his lance. He's got a blinding light that comes out of his helmet. He then shoots bolo balls out of his lance because that matches the Black Black Knights love their bolo balls. (laughs) Maybe it was the Caballero Negro. Maybe then (laughs) that would make sense. He wraps up Giant Man, who now is just hanging on by one hand to the landing gear, and his other arm is trapped by his side. If that hand slips, he's just a goner at this point. This is not a good situation for him. And then on the last panel of page 10, it says, and perhaps you're wondering what this little gadget is, Giant Man. 
I keep it strapped to my leg where I can reach it in a split second. I call it the itch ray, and here's why. <laughs> now, now, I mean, granted, having the power to make somebody suddenly terribly itchy all at once without warning actually would be a pretty effective power (laughs) but it just it just sounds lame (laughs) but uh of course then he only has that one hand hanging on there and now he's suddenly itching and so he uh lets go he figures out that he can take a shrink capsule and shrink down so that he can now slip out of the bolo ball wires. The wasp is able to catch him as he falls. Terrific, Jan. I could kiss you for this. She's like, well, who's stopping you? One way or the other, once again, we sort of always are jumping back and forth over the line about whether they're actually romantically involved or they're not. So then he jumps on the back of the Pegasus, just starts punching the Black Knight, and the Black Knight is once again able to throw him from the horse plunging him to his seeming death. <laughs> he grabs onto one of these parachute rides that, uh, you remember we used to do the parachute ride in uh, Six Flags in Atlanta? Oh, yeah, I remember. It's called the Great Gasp. Yeah. Yeah, so basically right. one of those things, and he's able to grab onto one of those uh, chairs. The wasp is still up there on the Black Knight. She says, and a simple feminine trick, like a sharp pinch, ought to do that little thing. Uh, And once again, that little thing, that weird, weird phrase that uh, Stan Lee seems to like so much these days, she's able to make the horse buck him off. He, of course, happens to land in a roller coaster car because, you know, that's the way physics works. Giant Man then is able to come up and grab him out of the roller coaster. The Black Knight is about to shoot a paralysis ray at, uh, it's not a gun gun, it's a sci-fi gun at Giant Man from behind again, but then he very quickly takes a shrink capsule faster than the guy can shoot the gun. The Black Knight escapes on his Pegasus, and that's it. This version of Black Knight is really lame. Uh, I'm not a fan. Upon further reflection, Itch Ray actually sounds like it would be a very useful power, but I'm sorry, it just sounds dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds dumb. Do you want to discuss that before I go on and wrap up the wonderful Wasp Tells a Tale? Why don't you go ahead and mention the Wasp Tells a Tale before we wrap up? Okay. This time, instead of going to a veterans hospital, she comes in, I guess what we would these days call a group home, but back in those days, they called an orphanage, tells them a story about the year 3000, where some convicts, they go escape. What kind of world are we going to end up on? And in the end, they choose the wrong kind of world and they regret it. That's basically the whole thing. And then she like takes her pill and flies away. There you go. Larry Lieber's story, just dressed up with a wasp framing sequence. Yes, I kind of like the Black Knight. He will be a strong enough villain to eventually become one of the original masters of evil. As with so many other villains, he has a problem in that his theme is not consistent. All the various things his lands can do and the various multiple guns he has hanging from his belt don't really fit into a Black Knight theme. But I think that the basic image of taking this old Marvel character of the Black Knight and having him flying around on a flying horse in Black Knight armor, finding superheroes, is a fine idea. It works even better when then they have his nephew do it as a hero and they will get many years out of good Black Knight stories. And it looks like he is finally about to become a factor in the MCU. It'll be interesting to see what they do with that character going forward. This is a perfectly acceptable issue. I think it's nice to see Ayers penciling and inking the book. 
I like him more than heck, and I think he's doing a nice job with it, although we've had Kirby for the last couple issues, which was obviously much better. I think this is a perfectly fine issue. Wasp Tales the Tale continues to be utterly baffling, unnecessary, but charming in some ways. Yeah, it's a little weird. These don't seem like the kind of stories that she would tell. I mean, you know, she's no. like a basically late teens society playgirl whose then dad was murdered and she's now an adventurer. None of that says, hey, let's tell Twilight Zone science fiction tales. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's weird and it won't be here for very long. Yes. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. We had a great Spider-Man issue. We had an entertaining and fine Fantastic Four issue. We had the return of Kirby on Thor, and we had some other stuff, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and otherwise, an entirely forgettable month. And a good Doctor Strange story. Sorry, forgot that. Yeah, not one of the all-time great Doctor Strange stories, but a perfectly fine Doctor Strange story. Great Tales of Asgard this month. Great Spider-Man. I would say those were the two big standouts of the month. Some other gorgeous Kirby art and Dick Gord. I think that's it for us this week. Well, thanks a lot, everybody. Stay safe out there. And we look forward to seeing you or hearing you or having you hear us in the next episode. Yes. Thanks, America. See you soon. Bye. All right. Bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.